Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Disaster followed disaster in Aquitaine. Rochelle was seized by the French. Tuar, one of the last places of importance remaining to the English, was besieged and hard-pressed. When news of all these misfortunes reached Edward III, he was roused from his lethargy and determined to make one last effort to recover what he had lost. A fleet was equipped in which Edward himself and even the Black Prince, whose health was now somewhat better, embarked. But the fleet never reached France. It was beaten about by contrary winds for some weeks and at last was obliged to return to England. There was now nothing to be done except to ask for a truce. In 1374 the Duke of Lancaster returned to England, leaving all the English possessions except Bordeaux and Bayonne in the hands of the French. It was determined that a general congress should be held at Bruges to discuss terms of peace with France. To this Congress the Pope and Edward III were also to send commissioners to discuss the points at issue between England and the Papacy. John of Gaunt was chief amongst the English ambassadors who went to Bruges to try and arrange a peace. John Wycliffe went as one of the ecclesiastical commissioners, of whom the Bishop of Bangor was head. There were great difficulties in the way of any peace between England and France. The French wished Edward to give up Calais, but the English would not hear of this. It was only the earnest endeavors of the Pope Gregory XI, a sincere lover of peace, which finally brought about a truce, to last until June 1376. Meanwhile, the ecclesiastical commissioners were also very busy and all waited eagerly to see the result of this conference. If Wycliffe had allowed himself to hope that it would lead to any reform in the Church, he must have been bitterly disappointed. We do not know what part he took in it, but he must have soon seen with disgust that his fellow commissioners had no desire for reform, and that the king himself was not more zealous than they. In September, six lengthy bulls arrived in England from the Pope, stating the conclusions arrived at by the conference. These bulls showed that nothing really had been agreed upon. The Pope made no promises for the future, but only arranged some informalities in the past. It seemed as if the king and the pope had come to an agreement, purely for their own personal advantage. Each was really to do pretty much as he liked, 
and the great questions which involved the interests of the church and the nation were left untouched end of section eighteen whatever men might have hoped from the congress at bruges and from the lay ministry formed by the influence of john of gaunt and his party all their hopes were now disappointed they had hoped for reform in the church and all they obtained was a compact with the papacy for the maintenance of old abuses the man who had been foremost in making this compact the bishop of bangor was rewarded by translation by papal provision to the see of hereford this was what the lay ministry had done for the church after all its promises of reform and what had become of the money which they had voted for the continuance of the war how had the war been conducted a few short years before france had lain crushed and humbled at the feet of england now nothing remained of all that the black prince had won in france except bayonne bordeaux calais and a few other unimportant places the english navy had been annihilated the english coasts had been insulted by the enemy never had england known such degradation men had believed in the duke of lancaster and this was what he had led them to now men saw his personal aims his selfish ambition all the tide of popular fury was turned against him and his ministers he was accused whether justly or not we cannot say of designs on the throne since he knew that his brother the black prince could not live long when he was dead nothing would stand between lancaster and the throne but the young prince richard there was no man more unpopular than he in england for he was regarded as the opponent of the people's hero the prince of wales but the people alone could do nothing against the power and influence of the duke in their hour of need however they found a leader in the man who so often led their armies victoriously against the enemy in the black prince himself parliament met at westminster in the spring of thirteen seventy six it was three years since it had last met an unusually long interval considering the frequent parliaments held in this reign the black prince had moved to the royal palace at westminster that he might be able to watch over the proceedings the king opened parliament on the twenty eighth of april and on the following day the lord chancellor nevet addressed the lords and the commons assembled in the great chamber at westminster he told them briefly the reasons for which they had been summoned first to advise on the good government and peace of the kingdom of england secondly to consider for the external defence of the kingdom by land as well as by sea and thirdly to make arrangements for the continuation of the war with france the commons were then bidden to retire and deliberate apart in their own chamber in the chapter house of the abbey of westminster at the demand of the commons certain bishops and barons were appointed to deliberate with them and give them their advice on the subject of the subsidy to be granted to the king the next point was the choice of a speaker and the election made by the commons was in itself a mark of opposition to the duke of lancaster peter de la mer the man chosen was the steward of edmund mortimer earl of march who had married philippa the only child of lionel duke of clarence lancaster's elder brother philippa had a prior right to the throne to that of john of gaunt and therefore she and her husband necessarily opposed his ambitious schemes peter de la mer's policy was sure to be opposition to the duke 
he was a contemporary chronicler tells us a man of abundant wisdom and courage a lover of justice and truth neither the bribes nor the threats of his enemies could deter him from the right course with regard to the demand for a subsidy the commons consented to grant the same sum as they had given three years before more they would not give on account of the great scarcity throughout the land produced by the plague the murrain amongst the cattle and the failure of the crops this matter once settled the commons proceeded to what they considered the chief business of the session the petitions about grievances headed by peter de la mare they carried their answer about the subsidy to the council and the barons then standing before the nobles amongst whom john of gaunt stood foremost the speaker began to declare the grievances of the country the people he complained were exceedingly weighed down by taxes but even this they would have borne patiently had the money been usefully employed yet in spite of the great expenditure the wars had not prospered the commons demanded an account of the way in which the money had been spent neither is it credible concluded the speaker that the king should want such an infinite treasure if they were faithful that served him great was the indignation of lancaster at this insolence of the commons as he called it full of wrath he declared his intention of silencing them next day by a show of his power but his followers pointed out to him that the commons had the support of the black prince his brother and that he could not crush them afraid lest they should go further and allow disclosures to be made about the evil manner of his own life he appeared before them next day seemingly mild and gracious then the commons went on with their proceedings they stated that on account of the great wars abroad the present council was insufficient to manage the affairs of the state and they asked that ten or twelve bishops lords and others be added to strengthen the council they next unfolded a long list of grievances which showed the disordered condition and the maladministration of the country they petitioned first of all that the king's guilty officers be punished they insisted that such heavy taxation would not have been necessary considering the immense amount of money that had come into the kingdom as ransoms for french prisoners if only it had been properly and honestly administered they promised that the king should have no difficulty in getting plenty of money for the war and his other necessities if he would first dismiss and punish his ministers they attacked richard lyons a london merchant and a creature of the duke's he had had patents granted him by members of the council to buy up merchandise and sell it again at his own price he had also caused customs to be put upon wool and other commodities which he levied principally for his own profit it was no wonder that the duke who interfered in this way with the trade of london should draw upon himself the hatred of the londoners lyons tried to save himself by sending a bribe to the prince of wales in the shape of a barrel containing a thousand pounds the prince refused it with scorn but afterwards regretted his refusal saying that he would have done a good deed by sending it to the knights that travail for the realm lyons then sent his money to the king who kept it saying that he took the same in part payment of the money that was owing to him for this and much more he owed him and had not presented him with anything but his own lyons could not save himself he was ordered to be imprisoned at the king's pleasure to lose the freedom of the city and have all his goods seized 
next followed the impeachment of lord latimer another creature of the duke's who was chamberlain and privy councillor and governor of a castle in brittany where he had appropriated large sums of money and had taken bribes to surrender places to the french he was also sentenced to be fined and imprisoned other accusations followed all founded on much the same charge appropriation of the public money one man william ellis an accomplice of lyons had extorted money at yarmouth from ships driven by stress of weather into the port another john peachy had obtained from lyons a patent giving him the exclusive right of selling sweet wines in london sir john neville was sentenced to be fined and imprisoned because he had allowed some soldiers whom he was conducting to france to ravage the country all the way to southampton the commons declared in plain terms that the people of england would no longer consent to have their interests trampled upon and their trade interfered with for the sake of enriching a greedy baronage and its creatures in all this they were firmly supported and encouraged by the prince of wales and the good bishop william of wickham who was quite restored to the favour of the people in fact the black prince had seen that the best policy would be to attempt to unite against the baronage the commons and the national clergy the commons were quite ready to welcome the clergy back to office for they now saw only too well the selfish policy which had made john of gaunt wish to drive them out but the commons did not stop short with attacking the evil counsellors of john of gaunt they went on to impeach alice perrers the woman who had gained such an unworthy influence over the king in his old age they passed an ordinance against certain women of the court and especially alice perrers who interfered with the course of justice in the kingdom sitting side by side on the bench with the judges alice perrers was examined before the nobles and banished from the court she was obliged to swear that she would keep away from the king it was by its vigorous attack upon these abuses and its desire to restore an orderly and discreet administration that this parliament earned for itself the name of the good parliament it established the right of parliament to demand the redress of grievances and to impeach the king's ministers when we remember that at the beginning of the reign of edward the third the one function of the commons was to vote subsidies we shall realize how great the increase of the power and influence of parliament must have been during the reign to admit of such proceedings as those of the good parliament taking place parliament was now strong enough to cause the ministers of the crown to be removed and new ones more pleasing to it to take their place nivet the lord chancellor was the only one of the old ministry who was retained End of section nineteen thirteen seventy six for the moment the people's cause had triumphed in parliament meanwhile the people's friend was slowly passing away the black prince had been afflicted for five years with a grievous malady but he had never been heard to murmur against the will of god his sufferings had been very great he was often so ill that his servant took him for dead he had rallied his last strength that he might give parliament his support in its struggle against the duke of lancaster for this purpose he had as we have seen moved to the royal palace of westminster there he lay in his father's great chamber and felt that his end was drawing very near 
two contemporary chroniclers have given us an account of his death so that we are able to form a tolerably accurate picture of the scene around his deathbed he bade them open the door of his room that all his followers might come in when all those who had served him were gathered round his bed he said to them sirs pardon me that i cannot give you who have so loyally served me a reward fitting your services but god and his saints will render it to you they all wept bitterly for every one of them loved him tenderly then he gave them all rich gifts and prayed the king that he would ratify these gifts and calling his little son to his bedside he bade him never change or take away the gifts which he had given to his servants then turning again to the earls and barons and all his other followers who stood around his bedside he said to them in a clear voice i commend to you my son who is yet but young and small and pray that as you have served me so from your heart you would serve him he called also his father and his brother the duke of lancaster and commended to them his wife and his son all promised him truly that they would comfort his son and maintain him in his right soon his sufferings became too great for him to see any one and it was forbidden that any more should enter his room where he lay prostrate in the pangs of death one man richard sturry a political opponent of the princes is said to have forced his way in for what end we can hardly tell perhaps to ask his forgiveness but the prince roused himself in the midst of his sufferings to upbraid him saying now you see what you have long desired but i pray god that he will make an end of your evil deeds after this outburst the prince sank back half fainting then the bishop of bangor approached and bade him forgive all those who had offended him and ask god for forgiveness of his own sins praying also all those whom he had offended for forgiveness but the only answer he could get from the prince was i will the good old bishop thought there must be some evil spirits present who prevented him saying more and so he began sprinkling the four corners of the room with holy water suddenly the prince lifted up his eyes to heaven and said god i give thee thanks for all thy benefits in all my prayers i beg thy pity and that thou wouldest grant me pardon for those sins which against thee i have wickedly wrought moreover also from all men whom knowingly or unknowingly i have offended i beg with all my heart the favour of forgiveness with these words he fell back and died and with him says the chronicler all hopes of englishmen departed bitter was the lamentation for his death an old chronicler who lived in the prince's day says him being present they feared not the incursions of any enemies nor the forcible meeting in battle truly unless god hold under his blessed hand that the miserable englishman be not trodden down it is to be feared that our enemies who compass us on every side will rage upon us even unto our utter destruction and will take our place and country arise lord help us and defend us for thy name's sake only the day before his death the prince had signed his will in it he appointed william of wickham one of his executors which shows us what confidence he placed in the bishop his will contains the most minute directions as to his funeral it was his express desire that he should be buried in the great cathedral of canterbury near the famous english saint thomas of canterbury 
his body was therefore carried from the palace at westminster where he died to canterbury there as it entered the gates it was met by a warrior mounted on a prancing steed he was armed for war and bore the prince's arms quartered then came four men carrying banners each of whom wore on his head a cap with the prince's arms a few steps further on the funeral procession was met by a second knight he also rode a stately steed but he was armed for peace and bore the prince's badge of ostrich feathers preceded by these warriors the funeral procession advanced through the city till it reached the cathedral then the body of the brave prince was laid before the high altar and vigils and masses were said in honour of it till the time came when it must be carried to its last resting-place in the lady chapel there it was buried at a distance of ten feet from the shrine of the martyr st thomas whom the prince when alive had always delighted to honour over it soon rose the noble monument which still marks the spot where lie the remains of the great warrior respecting his tomb also he had left minute directions the tomb is of marble sculptured all round with twelve shields each a foot high on six of the shields are his arms and on the other six his badge of ostrich feathers on the top lies his recumbent figure worked in relief in copper gilt he is represented in full armour wearing his helmet with his crest of a leopard engraved upon it he himself composed the epitaph which is graven on his tomb and it gives us a faithful picture of the mind of the man who wrote it it is written in french and may be translated all ye that pass with closed mouth by where this body reposes hear this that i shall tell you just as i know to say it such as thou art such was i you shall be such as i am of death i never thought so long as i had life on earth i had great riches of which i made great nobleness land houses and great wealth clothes horses silver and gold but now i am poor and wretched deep in the earth i lie my great beauty is all gone my flesh is all wasted right narrow is my house with me naught but truth remains and if now ye should see me i do not think that you would say that ever i had been a man so totally am i changed for god's sake pray the heavenly king that he have mercy on my soul all they who pray for me or make accord to god for me god give them his paradise where no men are wretched we need find no difficulty in reading aright the character of the black prince there are no contradictions to be accounted for all is plain and straightforward he was a simple god-fearing man who did his duty and led a life in accordance with the highest ideal of his times he was not in advance of his day we owe no great reforms no marked steps in our national progress to him but he is the type of the noblest spirit of his times he shows us the stuff of which englishmen were made in those days friend and foe alike counted him the bravest warrior of that age in battle he knew no fear and had that kind of courage and energy which inspired the meanest man in his ranks to fight boldly like his prince he was not only brave but was a skilful general and knew how to dispose his troops to the best advantage in each of his three great victories he fought against fearful odds and his success was due quite as much to the skilful grouping of his troops as to his bravery in the treatment of his prisoners 
he shows the beautiful courtesy of a true knight though we must blame him severely for his cruelty in the massacre of limoges we must remember that he only showed himself to be on a level with the morality of his day moreover he was aggravated by ill-health and suffering and by the treachery of his subjects in private life he seems to have shown great kindliness and consideration for others he was beloved by all who came in contact with him the noblest of english knights chandos felton and many others accompanied him on all his campaigns and clung to him with a devotion which only personal love can have prompted he forgot none of his servants either on his deathbed or in his will when in his last days he saw that the english people were suffering from misgovernment and from the tyranny of his brother moved with noble pity he gathered his last strength that he might show himself their friend and save them from oppression as far as we can judge from the scanty records of the chroniclers he seems to have been much beloved by his wife the fair maid of kent and to have lived with her in great happiness he was a sincerely religious man his special devotion to the holy trinity is repeatedly mentioned by the chroniclers and we have seen how he never engaged in battle without earnest prayer his good qualities are throughout those of a simple warrior he had the genius of a soldier not the genius of a ruler when he first became ruler of aquitaine he seemed to be all-powerful his name inspired such fear that no one would have ventured to attack him it seemed an easy task to attach his subjects to himself and form a well-consolidated principality which might safely resist the attacks of his enemies but he lacked the qualities which would have enabled him to do this he was no politician he did not understand how to govern with economy and develop his resources before a wise and crafty man like charles v of france he was powerless he engaged in the fatal spanish expedition which ruined his health and drained his coffers his dominions crumbled away they were lost one by one without any battles whilst he looked on helplessly at the ruin in reality his great victories were fruitless and the wonderful success of the first half of edward the third's reign brought no lasting result edward the third was no more of a politician than his son instead of being content with what he had won and making it secure he indulged in wild schemes of ambition and whilst dreaming about the french crown he lost the duchy of aquitaine it seems impossible to doubt that if edward the third and his son had set about it in the right way they might have secured for themselves the possession of aquitaine as it was they not only lost what they had gained but with it also what had come down to them from their fathers yet we need not deplore this for the progress of england it was far better that she should not be hampered with external possessions the most important thing was that england herself should grow strong before she thought of extending her dominions edward the third's wars were useful to the progress of england not because of the glory which they shed round his name but because the great outlay which they involved drove him to call frequent parliaments that he might raise supplies thus a marked increase in the power and importance of parliament is the only beneficial result of this war in the main its results were most disastrous and no wise and far-sighted ruler would ever have engaged in it it caused the best energies of the country to be devoted to the pursuit of a chimerical object the crown of france 
for this object the resources of the country were drained and the interests of the people were disregarded whilst heavy taxes were laid upon them which crippled their commerce and their industries the bright promise of the opening of edward the third's reign found no fulfilment in the end the chief legacy he left to his successors was enmity with france and a restless desire to win back what he had lost so whilst we admire the valour and energy of the black prince in the conduct of the wars we cannot praise his father's wisdom in engaging in them but we must remember that though in wisdom he was not before his age in valour he surpassed his countrymen of all ages End of section twenty of richard the second it is not possible to make a pause in the history of the times with the black prince's death it will be well for us briefly to consider the events which followed it his death interrupted the reform begun by the good parliament by depriving it of his support and preparing the way for his brother's return to power john of gaunt interfered in the most unscrupulous manner in the elections for the next parliament and so obtained the return of men who reversed the acts of the good parliament william of wickham was again dismissed from office and the nobles were once more triumphant alice perrers was allowed to return to the old king who lived at altham alone and neglected when he died in thirteen seventy seven at the age of sixty-five even alice perrers deserted him after she had stolen the rings from his fingers richard the second's accession was welcomed with joy by the londoners and a magnificent ceremony graced his coronation as he was only in his eleventh year a council of twelve was appointed to govern during his minority meanwhile the attack of the nobles upon the church went on and wycliffe in his zeal for reform was working side by side with john of gaunt he was beginning to be regarded with suspicion and animosity by the pope and in thirteen seventy seven was summoned to appear before bishop courtney of london to answer the charges of heresy made against him john of gaunt was present to defend him and spoke such insulting words to courtney that the londoners who loved their bishop rushed to his rescue they showed their hatred of lancaster by sacking his palace of the savoy but they only objected to wycliffe in so far as he was lancaster's friend in his desires for reform they cordially sympathized and when at the end of the same year he was again summoned to appear before the archbishop at lambeth the londoners broke in and dissolved the sittings of the court wycliffe also found a friend in the princess of wales the fair maid of kent who wrote to the bishop telling him to desist from the proceedings against him in the university of oxford he was allowed to teach and lecture as he liked and his schemes for church reform were listened to with approval on all sides from his living of lutterworth he sent forth itinerant preachers who went as the disciples of st francis had done before to labour among the poor and the neglected one of his great desires was to reform preaching and these men were taught to preach the word of god in simplicity and purity where when and to whom they could they were called the simple priests and spoke to the people in simple homely language spreading wycliffe's doctrines far and wide for them wycliffe wrote many small tracts which he published in large numbers 
and in which he appealed to the people in their own language and from their own point of view he had set on foot a great spiritual revival and if he had stopped short in his reforming tendencies and had not gone on to deny the doctrine of transubstantiation he might have come down to was canonized as st john de wycliffe the founder of a new order of preaching friars but hopes of reform in the english church were destined to be crushed for a time wycliffe published in oxford twelve theses on the subject of transubstantiation the chancellor felt himself bound to interfere and forbid heretical teaching in the university wycliffe appealed to the king to have the question settled at this moment all england was disturbed by the outbreak of the peasants revolt we have seen in speaking of the black death many of the causes of discontent among the peasantry the wages of the labourers were fixed by law rigorous attempts were made to bind the peasant to the soil and to restore the old conditions of serfdom but since the days of serfdom there had been a great advance in the intelligence of the peasantry who eagerly listened to the new views which the wandering preachers sent out by wycliffe were spreading over the country it was said that all men were equal and had equal rights the popular rhyme when adam delved and eve span where was then the gentleman ran from mouth to mouth the iniquity of serfdom was becoming more and more clearly seen and at the same time its oppressive character was making itself more and more harshly felt the men who had served with courage and distinction in the french wars could not be expected to submit to their former serfage a simultaneous rising of the peasantry in different parts of the country shows that the revolt had been long planned and carefully arranged it was the result not of any one special act of tyranny but of a long course of oppression and above all of the attempt to return to the old system of exacting personal labour as payment for rent instead of a money commutation the insurgents of essex under a leader who went by the name of jack straw joined with the insurgents of kent under wat the tyler and marched on london striking terror by the way the young king took refuge in the tower the insurgents entered london and began their work of destruction their rage was especially directed against the lawyers they destroyed the temple with all its books and records the foreign merchants in the city were also treated with great cruelty then the insurgents swarmed round the tower and demanded that the king should come out and hear their grievances richard the second was only a boy but he knew no fear accompanied only by one or two attendants he rode to mile end and listened to the grievances of the peasantry he granted all they asked and promised a general pardon to all concerned in the revolt but whilst this conference was going on the remainder of the rebels had broken into the tower seized the archbishop simon sudbury and murdered him on tower hill their fury was directed against him not as an archbishop but as a chancellor after this it was hardly to be hoped that there would be a peaceful end to the revolt the next day when quite by chance richard met wat the tyler and his followers face to face the peasant leader spoke so insolently that the lord mayor sir richard walworth struck him to the ground with his dagger and when the insurgents cried kill kill they have killed our captain richard rode boldly to the front saying what need ye my masters 
i am your captain and your king the peasantry was easily touched they gathered round richard kneeling and asking his pardon the panic caused by the revolt was over for a week the insurgents had kept the country in terror now richard made a progress through the counties with forty thousand men at his back and the rebels suffered stern and terrible justice for their revolt the charters granted to the peasantry in the first moment of terror were revoked and they seemed to have gained nothing by their rising but they had shown the landowners their strength and though no immediate change was made it became more and more clear that the old conditions of serfdom could not be enforced it is quite certain that wycliffe had nothing to do with the rising of the peasants still at the time it caused him and his teachings to be regarded with terror by the respectable classes of society the communistic and socialistic views which had been spread among the people had in many cases been preached by men who declared themselves followers of wycliffe people were inclined to look upon the revolt as partly the outcome of his teaching and so were no longer as ready as before to listen to his schemes for reform still wycliffe was not proceeded against with severity certain of his opinions were laid before a council of bishops and doctors of theology held in london and were pronounced erroneous but wycliffe himself was left in peace he stayed within the church living quietly in his vicarage of lutterworth and busying himself with his translation of the bible till he died on the thirty-first december thirteen eighty four this translation of the bible was the natural outcome of wycliffe's teaching he had always insisted upon the necessity of the word of god being preached to every one and had said that the scriptures were the common property of all men but as long as the bible existed only in the latin tongue it was a sealed book to the great majority of men wycliffe's earnest belief that all men should know and study it for themselves led him to conceive the idea of translating it it was a great undertaking for one man to contemplate and single-handed he could never have accomplished it he himself began with the new testament whilst nicholas of hereford took the old testament in hand this man was a doctor of theology and one of the chief leaders of wycliffe's party in oxford he got as far in his translation as the book of baruch when he seems to have been suddenly interrupted probably by proceedings conducted against him on account of his opinions Wycliffe himself translated the entire New Testament and probably finished the translation of the Old Testament. The next step was to get copies of the translation made that it might be distributed amongst the people. This was done rapidly, and in 1382 copies of the separate books and portions were circulated widely. This English translation was made from the Vulgate, that is, the Latin translation, and not from the original Greek or Hebrew nicholas of hereford stuck very closely to the latin forms and was almost pedantically literal so that he was hardly successful in making his translation readable wycliffe's translation is very different he wished above all to put into his work the spirit of the english language to write in such a way that he might strike home to the hearts of readers of all his english writings his translation of the bible is the most remarkable for the force and beauty of the style wycliffe's writings mark an epoch in the development of the english language chaucer did much for it but his poems could not influence the people in the same way that wycliffe's bible did 
nothing else could have had the same intimate relation with the spiritual life of the people as the bible a new book to most of them no words could so firmly fix themselves in their memory as those in which their saviour had taught them the meaning and the duties of their life the first translation of the bible was soon found to be very faulty it was revised with great care by wycliffe himself and more especially by his friend john purvis it was not complete in its new and greatly improved form till after wycliffe's death the lollards as the followers of wycliffe were called formed a strong party and their fervour did not begin to die out till the end of henry v's reign but we cannot doubt that the movement would have had more permanent results had it not been interrupted by the peasants revolt with the remainder of richard the second's reign we have nothing to do we have only thought it right to trace briefly the movement amongst the working classes which was the most important consequence of the black death in wycliffe's teaching and in the peasants revolt we see the two most striking events of this epoch in a certain way they were the results of the french wars whose course we have been following these wars produced a general stir and ferment they gave the people new ideas and new life the men who had earned such distinction by their brave fighting at crecy and poitiers were not content to settle down on their return home to the old state of things they wanted greater freedom better wages and improved manner of living their minds were open to receive new teaching the result was the increasing discontent with their position which led to the peasants revolt and the eagerness with which wycliffe's teaching was received on all sides but both wycliffe's teaching and the views expressed by the leaders of the peasants revolt were premature they were founded upon principles which could not at that time meet with general acceptance and they were followed by a decided reaction a period of darkness followed this great burst of intellectual life in literature there were no worthy successors of chaucer the reforming views of wycliffe were slowly stamped out the peasants failed in obtaining those results for which they had struggled from the time of chaucer till the days of the reformation there is no great name in the history of english literature it was not till then that intellectual life revived in england and england took those great steps in advance which wycliffe had hoped she might take in his day but we must not look upon the reformation as in any way the result of wycliffe's teaching by that time his ideas had faded away from men's remembrance and the english reformation received its impulse from luther's teaching in germany even in this way the influence of the french wars was transient the advantages which edward the third and the black prince gained by their victories were lost even in their own lifetime in the same manner the intellectual movement produced by these wars was stamped out and was followed only by the long anarchy of the wars of the roses end of section twenty one recording by pamela nagami in encino california march two thousand nineteen End of the Life of Edward the Black Prince by Louise Creighton Greatest Audiobooks is excited to partner with Audiobooks.com. Sign up for a free 30-day trial and get your first audiobook free. Cancel any time, no strings attached. Click below to get your free audiobook today.